strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. And thanks for being here. I appreciate you spending some time with the Mike Broomhead Show. want to remind you very quickly that during King LASIK's season of savings, LASIK for both eyes is now just $3,500. That is a $2,000 savings. You couple that with 0% financing for 24 months on approved credit. LASIK with Dr. King is only $146 a month. Go to kinglasik.com slash Arizona for complete details. So it's interesting as we look at polling, and I've got another polling uh, set of polls from High Ground, Chuck Coughlin's organization. And uh, High Ground has a lot of these races uh, tightening. Um, it looks like Adrian Fontes, according to this poll, is leading Republican Mark Fincham by 2.4 points. But there is also a story I thought was kind of humorous on AZ Central. And the reason why I printed this out was because of some of the quotes that are in it. I mean, to me, some of this is really funny. Um, Polls in Arizona Senate and governor's race don't count on them is what the headline says. You can't count on polls Um, for. uh, So how accurate are the Arizona polls? Did this listen to this quote? This is terrific. Nathan Gonzalez is a nonpartisan campaign analyst and editor of a D.C. based inside elections said here's this is an expert. We won't know how accurate the polling was until November 9th. Really? You know what? I'm going to become a baseball expert. And I'm going to tell everybody we are not going to know who won the World Series until the, someone wins four games. I mean, of course, we're not going to know how accurate polls are on November 9th. Oh, my gosh. It, I mean, that quote, if you're a professional in the elections industry and that's your quote, well, we really won't know how accurate they are until the, after the election. Really? Thank you. That, that, that's expertise. Uh, the reason why I asked the question about stolen elections, here's a headline. This is from the USA Today. Disinformation is a midterm elections threat that could keep millions of voters at home, analysts say. So now we're back to misinformation. See, this is the election deniers are on both sides, and I think we should be making sure that we we call it out on both sides. In 2016, it was Russian disinformation. If you remember the four years of investigations into Russian collusion of the Trump campaign, and it was being done by two major committees in the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi directed Jerry Nadler from the Judiciary Committee and Adam Schiff from the Intelligence Committee to investigate for years. We ended up getting the Mueller report and then the Mueller testimony. Why? Russian collusion. Misinformation. And so now we're finding out the other side of that is in the 2020 election or in the, yeah 2020 was that there was a lot of misinformation being pushed again into Facebook saying, hey, this looks like Russian misinformation. So they pushed down stories about Hunter Biden. So here we go now with more questions on both sides of the aisle that they are now worried that misinformation is going to get millions of people from going to the polls. Sunlight filtered through stained glass windows at a historic Campbell AME church in in um, the pastor sat in a pew thinking about how he'd fight the mid- midterm disinformation in communities of color, the kind of community right outside of the, uh, the sanctuary doors. So not only is it misinformation that is out there targeting one side of the aisle, it's also targeting people of color. So you've got people already asking questions and saying misinformation is going to steal the election. We haven't even counted one. We haven't seen the public count of one vote. Not one. We aren't going to until 8 o'clock 
Arizona time, we will see Arizona results at 8 p.m. on election night. By the way, we'll all be here. If you're not near a television and you are somewhere where you want to hear great uh, coverage of the elections, we are going to have a night full of it on election night. Make sure you're here with us. Um, so I looked at this story and I thought, why are this an election denial thing? How is it not a major story? Now, I'm not saying that it should be covered like when candidates say it, but you don't have, as far as I know, you don't have a lot of candidates going out still making videos saying that the election was stolen in 2020. But what you do have is a former presidential candidate, former secretary of state, former senator and former first lady in Hillary Clinton that made a video last week saying that the Republicans are actively working with the Supreme Court to steal the 2024 presidential election. She just released that video. So in a time when we are trying to say about election deniers, we have to knock off the rhetoric. We are, there are people, you know, the majority of the country, the vast majority of the country is concerned, at least to some degree, about political violence this election season. So you've got the president of the United States saying that MAGA Republicans are a threat to democracy. You've got the former president of the United States and Barack Obama here in town saying that if the Republican wins, if Republicans win in Arizona, we may lose our democracy. You don't think that's fueling up anger and fear in people? It absolutely is. It absolutely does. So if we're going to talk about fear-mongering on one side of the aisle, shouldn't we be talking about it on both sides of the aisle? Shouldn't we be telling both sides of the aisle to knock off the fear rhetoric? We're going to lose our democracy. We don't have a democracy. We have a representative republic. But I understand democracy rolls off the tongue and saying representative republic doesn't sound as cool. But then and I know what they mean and you know what they mean. Is this just nothing more than campaign rhetoric or are they actually trying to breed fear in people that if the Republicans control the House and the Senate or if Republicans are elected in Arizona or in other states, that they are going to change the system so much that we will lose our democracy? Because I know people that believe it. I know people that are afraid that if certain Republicans get elected, they are going to take away your right to vote in an election or control an election. And that's what the fear is. And I think it's fear mongering on both sides. If you have people saying the election was stolen in 2020 and we've got to go watch ballot drop boxes and wear tactical gear and everything else and you call that fear mongering then it's fair to say what they're doing on the other side. But it's not fear-mongering if you believe it. So if you're someone that's concerned about Republicans in power, then you don't think that's fear-mongering. You think that's just telling people the truth. Well, then welcome to the other side of the aisle because there are good people out there on the right side of the aisle. I am not one of them that thinks that the election was stolen in 2020 and it could possibly be stolen again in 22 and again in 24. And so what they're trying to prevent is it from being stolen again. I'm not saying you should agree with them. But they believe that's truth. They don't believe it's fear-mongering. So we either have to tell both sides to knock it off or we have to let them just talk and let them get through their campaign rhetoric. I just – I don't get this. We are so close to the election and you've got this stuff going on. Now it's – we're already hearing the words disinformation, disenfranchising voters, and millions of people are going to stay home because of it. Is it just – you know, sour grapes when you lose, or is there reason to be concerned here?
Coming up in a moment, um, Arizona releases new school letter grades after the pandemic. How are Arizona schools recovering from the pandemic? We'll talk about it in just a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. And thanks for being here. Arizona releases new school letter grades, first since the pandemic, and they're seeing big improvements in some districts. Out in Buckeye in the West Valley, the Buckeye Elementary School District saw their four DNF schools move to A's and B's. That is excellent. Now, it's state law that we now have to require they give letter grades. Letter grades are mandated by state law. Federal law also requires states to measure school performance using comparable measures across all schools. A letter grade is a snapshot and assessment of test scores, student learning growth from year to year, and preparation level of middle and elementary school students for the next grade and high school graduation rates. Peoria Unified School District has seen 37 out of their 42 elementary and high schools rated A or B. Dysart Unified School District doubled its number of A schools from 2019, according to a statement from the district. That is great news that they are moving in the right direction. What's interesting is how we are dealing with the teacher shortage. Uh, one of the stories that I have here is that in Mesa, in one of the Mesa, um, in one Mesa classroom, four teachers oversee 135 students. And there is an interesting story by Griselda Satino here at KTAR News that says some Arizona schools are looking abroad to fill teacher vacancies. So schools across Arizona are doing everything they can to fill the vacancies. Uh, one of the hundreds of international teachers hired to work in Arizona schools. Um, is he's known his uh, he's known as Mr. B to his students teaches second grade at Canyon Breeze Elementary School in Avondale. Said I've been teaching for ten years now. I was a teacher for eight years in the Philippines. He said I love doing it. I find myself going to school every day with excitement and a happy face. So we are seeing people that are or districts are reaching outside um, of our borders to find teachers. I think it's a unique way to try to find and fill gaps and fill voids. Um, but the issues and the and the questions about Arizona schools, this is where um, I think that the divide still continues. And I want to say I talk often about schools and when they're not performing and underperformance and how bad the school grades have been. Um, I think that the governor's program with the summer school program that was a camp program worked wonders. And I'm glad to see that it happened. I believe it's going to continue under the next governor, which is really good news. And that there seems to be an all hands on deck approach. As I mentioned before, um, I had the privilege of going and speaking on behalf of a bill in front of the Education Committee in the House of Representatives here in Arizona. It's the first time I've ever done anything like that. Um, I had been – I think I had been one or two other times to a committee hearing just to hear something. But that was the first time I've ever spoken in front of a committee, and it was a, it was something, a piece of legislation that I believed in. So I did a request to speak, and I encourage you to go and watch one of these committees. If there is an issue in Arizona that you are really compelled by, to go in, in, into one of these committees and see how business is done. Because I watched both sides of the aisle uh, carry on conversations with ideas from all over the map on how to improve education in Arizona. And I left encouraged at, at all of the ideas that were being thrown around. Some I really agreed with, some I didn't agree with at all. But the simple fact that so many people were gathered – because they were compelled to try to finish to fix and and when I say fix it, I guess it um, means it's broken. I would say improve Arizona schools. And in doing that, uh, the piece of legislation that I was in favor of passed, and I think it's going to do things great things for CTEDs or the career te- technical education districts. 
but where there is still a divide in what we teach and what we don't teach in Arizona schools and who gets the final say. And that's the one area where I won't waver is that in the end, the parents have the final say. Um, a doctor cannot force a parent, uh, a child into a procedure, um, although they are the expert. And parents should listen to what the doctors have to say. But you choose the doctor. You choose the course of action for your child. They are your children. You are the one that are ultimately responsible for that child. And I don't think we should ever lose sight of that. I think that a pediatrician understands that they serve the child and the parent. And when you have that attitude of service, you're a much better person at your job, whether you're a, a dentist that works at, you know, a pediatric dentist or whoever it is, knowing that ultimately, yes, you are serving that patient's needs, but you're dealing with the parents. The parents have the final say. And here with uh, with schools, there has been a lot of pushback in America where parents are coming in and saying, we don't approve. We don't think this is wrong. And there are so many times when these parents go in and talk where it is so far over anybody's line of what they would think is appropriate in a classroom to the point where I'm confident in saying that if some of this material that was available in school libraries was handed to a child by any other adult but a librarian or a teacher in a school setting, they would be arrested for handing them pornographic material. And so parents are saying it's inappropriate. We want to say in what's being taught. Teachers should embrace that kind of involvement, but instead it's become a power struggle in some districts of who ultimately has the say, which is why you're seeing big changes in school boards and how they're run and who's running for those offices. Um, but in the end, we all want the same thing. We want children that are well-educated, a child that is able to go on to high school prepared to learn for the rest of their life, that whatever pathway they choose, whether it's the workforce, the military, or it's a higher education, college, master's degree, a doctorate, whatever it is, they are prepared to do it. And when they change their mind, when they get older and they decide now is the time for me to seek out my degree, that they do that and they have the tools and the skill set to still learn. I took a college class, one college class here in Arizona years ago. I was going to I was going to try to get a poli science degree at Arizona Christian University. They had an adult ed program for a while that was fantastic. And the professor was uh, the the uh, the poli science director. And she was very she's a friend. But she was that's why it was intimidating, because as soon as I sat down in that class, I thought, man, these people are going to figure out what a moron I really am that, you know, when they start seeing me write papers, they're going to wonder what planet I came from. It'd been the 1980s since I had written a paper on anything. And I ended up getting an A in the class. And it was something I'm very proud of. I don't have a degree. I've passed one college class. But there was a sense of pride that I could get an A in a class. I was interested. It was political ideology and worldview. I learned so much, but I was proud of myself for passing that class. And it, I haven't gotten my degree. I want to. It's more important to me now. But to my point, what it has done is it has shown me that I now have the skill set to learn. I still have the skill set to do the coursework. And I want to thank those fine teachers in my younger, younger years that gave me those tools because, you know, dusting them off was a little scary, but using them was great. Uh, coming up, what we're going to do is speak with an attorney named John Bolitis. He is uh, with uh, Jennings Strauss Life Law Firm, and he is an he is an, um, a labor attorney. Going to talk about your rights to vote and what your boss has to let you do and when they have to let you do it. It's a great conversation. Should be interesting for Tuesday. Stick around. Strong value. 
values, and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Appreciate you spending some time with the show. Uh, election day is Tuesday. People go to the polls, some of the early voting locations, and there are some rules in place. There are some laws in place in Arizona that make sure that you have the ability to vote. So joining us right now is an attorney that's an expert in that. His name is John Belitis. Uh, welcome to the show, and thanks for doing this. Oh, hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about a voter's rights here in Arizona. Can you explain the basics of what this law says about people having a window to be able to vote on Election Day? Yeah, so under Arizona's voter rights law, employees here are entitled to three consecutive hours of time within which to vote on Election Day without having to worry about losing any pay. So as a practical matter, what that means is that if you don't have three consecutive hours between when the polls open and your workday starts or when your shift ends at the end of the day and the polls close, your employer needs to provide enough paid time off to you in order to ensure that you have that three-hour block of opportunity of time to vote. So uh, so if it's, let's say the polls open at 8 o'clock in the morning or 7 o'clock in the morning and you start work at 8, that doesn't give you three hours. If you don't, and, and at the end of your shift is at 6 before the pl- polls close, your boss has to give you some leeway in there at the beginning of your shift or the end of your shift to make sure you have time to vote. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And a couple things to think about is, one, the law largely applies to people who work longer shifts, like, you know, like four tens, because the example you just gave would put a a person in a shift scenario like that without three hours at the front end or the back end of their day, right? But what people do have to understand is that the employer, it's discretionary, the employer decides when it's going to give you that block. So it can say, okay, well, you're going to have it in the morning or you're going to have it in the afternoon. The employee doesn't decide, the employer decides. So uh, I I know this may be an odd question. Have you ever been asked, what about first responders? You know, when when a firefighter works a 24-hour shift, how do they work that out for people like that and keep the community safe? Well, I mean, in a situation like that, uh, you know, you you have to really think about other alternatives like mail-in ballots ahead mm-hmm. of time. Because if you're if you're on a 24-hour shift and there isn't any way you could actually be absent for for three hours, because, for example, you know, you could get a call at a fire station or something. Adjustments are going to have to be made in a situation like that. You know, just it's just practical reality. All right. So let's say a scenario where an, where an employer says to an employee, we're going to give you your three hour window in the morning. And so you show up at the polling place and we have that nightmare that we had a few years ago where it takes longer than three hours to vote. What happens then? Well, I mean, you would hope that employers wouldn't retaliate against somebody for taking longer than they actually are legally required or legally uh, entitled to have. But once that three-hour block expires, so let's say you only have two and the employer says, look, I'll give you you, uh, an hour of paid time off in the morning to give you that three-hour block. And then you're at the polls and it runs into four hours or four and a half hours. The employer isn't entitled to then pay you for that additional time. The, you know, they could they could dock you if you're an hourly worker, for example, and say, well, you were gone for four and four and a half hours. I'm giving you an hour of time, but we're going to have to dock you for an hour or an hour and a half. That's perfectly legal. The point is that they, you just have to have those three hours made up, whether it's, you know, all paid or whether it's a combination of hours in the morning when you're free 
and pay time off from the employer. Is this something that is as uh, known throughout the community? Are there employers listening right now that are surprised that this is their obligation? Yeah, you know, it's funny, Mike. Every time we, you know, we, an election cycle comes around, I find that because we've talked about this a lot over the years, and so, you know, when, when when we have an election coming up, it, the law is the law's been on the books for I don't know thirty or forty years, but it becomes relevant so infrequently that I don't. I think a lot of people don't know about it. So it's it's really good for folks like you to get the word out because this is you know this is an important right that people have, and a lot of people like the experience of actually going to the polls on election day. They don't want to vote in advance by mail. And uh, this is something that people should know, uh, employers and employees alike, so that people, you know, get what they're entitled to in terms of their rights. I will, t- I will tell you that our law, there's a lot of laws like this uh, across the country, but Arizona's voter rights law is really generous by comparison. I mean, this is probably one of the gold standard laws in compared to in comparison to other states' laws. Labor Attorney John Belitis is joining us talking about your right to vote, your right to vote by law here in Arizona. So let's talk about the uh, the penalties then. If an employer does not afford that to an employee, what happens? Well, the statute's pretty clear that there's no what we would call a private cause of action, meaning there isn't a claim that a worker really could bring to address a violation. But the statute makes clear also that employers that don't comply have criminal penalty criminal penalties associated with that. So if an employer doesn't comply with this law and denies a worker the right to go and vote and have a three-hour block, technically that constitutes a Class 2 misdemeanor. So, I mean, the employer has an incentive to do this, although it's unlikely that a worker, you know, would have the ability to then file a lawsuit or pursue a claim if uh, if the statute was violated. I think one other thing I want to make sure everybody understands is that this right is great and it's generous, but employees have to notify their employer at least one day in advance in order to take advantage of this. It's <laughs> that was not, my that was my yeah. next question was, are, are there any obligations on behalf of the employees with this? Yeah. So the, the statute doesn't say how the notice is to be provided. You know, it doesn't say got to be in writing or it can be oral. It just says an employee wanting to exercise his or her rights to this three hour block has to make the employer aware of that fact at least one day prior to the election. And so in in the context of our discussion today, Mike, that means either today, right, or on Monday. And if if the worker doesn't give that notice at least one day in advance, come Tuesday morning, if they want to do this, they're, they're not going to be technically entitled to it. The, the employee has to give notice at least one day in advance. So to recap in all of this, if people are listening now and say, oh my gosh, I better tell my boss because I'm this person, they go and they talk to the boss, uh, whether it's email or, or verbally, and they say, I need to vote. But then the employer has the right to say, okay, I'm going to give you that three-hour block in them. And it has to total three hours. So if it's going to infringe by an hour or two, that's the time frame they have to give them. They have to give them the full three hours just to make sure they have a three-hour block, correct? Right. It has to be three consecutive hours, and the employer only has to make up with paid time off the difference between what free time the worker has at the beginning or the beginning or the end of the day and the three-hour block. And so, you know, the example you gave at the beginning of the discussion is a good one. If there's only one or two hours at the beginning or the end of the day 
you know, from when the polls open or close and the workers start at or end of shift, that's the time, the pay time that the employer needs to give. All right. So last question, it may sound silly, but what prevents an employee from saying I'm going to go and vote is do they have to prove they voted or can they just go grab lunch? Yeah, no, that's funny, Mike, because that question has come up in this context, I think, as long as I can remember (laughs) discussing the law in in an election cycle. There really isn't anything that addresses that in the law. And I guess if you're a worker and, and, you know, for every right that we've got, right, we know this, someone's going to try to exploit it, right? So if a worker does that, then it's wrong. It shouldn't happen. But, you know, there's nothing in the law that says the employee has to prove, right, that he or she went and did this. I guess I guess what I would say is if after the fact, right, the employer finds out that that happened, well, then the employer will be completely within its rights to discipline the worker because that's that's just an employee defrauding the employer and taking advantage of a right that other people are using correctly. So. Well, I appreciate the conversation. It's it, it's a little unique for a lot of people, but I think it's important information that people have this close to the election. And I appreciate your expertise. Thanks, Mike. All right. That is John Belides. He's an attorney, a labor attorney here in Arizona, advises big corporations, led state legislature on uh, on employee issues, on labor issues. And just a little bit of information. If you fit into that category where you don't have a full three hour block in a row, three hours in a row because of your work day, your employer has to give you that three hour window at their discretion, which three hours they're going to give you. But you've got to let them know at least one day in advance. So get out there and do it. Make sure you vote on Tuesday. In a moment, we're going to talk about Arizona lawmakers are pushing the state of California to cut their water usage. What could that mean for us? We'll talk about that in just a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show. KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Appreciate you spending some time. Happy Friday. We are uh, going to talk a lot more about elections, obviously, as we're getting closer and closer. Polling numbers seem to be getting tighter and tighter in Arizona, being ground zero. We'll get back to the elections coming up in a few moments. But another big topic in Arizona that is a big part of our future and future growth and ability to grow reasonably and responsibly is water. Arizona state and federal lawmakers are pressuring California to cut back its Colorado River usage as the federal government is threatening to intervene after states fail to agree to a plan to limit what they take from the river. So this is a topic that I have been talking about for quite a long time, and I was introduced to it by former Senator John McCain, I'm sorry, John Kyle, who worked with Senator McCain. But John Kyle was responsible for a lot of what we now know has helped Arizona get to this point in making sure it had the water it needed with the Central Arizona Project and Salt River Project. But the the cap, the Central Arizona Project where water is brought in and the agreement we had to make with California, what's fascinating about this, if you talk to the experts, if I were to say to you environmentalism, where would you think first, Arizona or California. And most people would jump to the conclusion that the environmentalists live in California. But if you look at statistics, if you look at what's really happened by necessity, because we are a desert, because we were such an immensely quickly growing city or valley, a group of cities in the valley, we had more of a self-interest in preserving, conserving, and and retaining retention of water that we would continue that throughout our growth, which we have done a very good job of much better than the state of California. And so we should be proud of what we've done to uh, maintain the levels that we have of water here in the valley. 
and across the state. But what we're seeing now with this drought that's happened here in the desert southwest and other parts of the country is we are seeing water levels drop dramatically to record levels that are scaring people and and they should be concerned. How are we going to continue the growth we have in the southwestern United States while this drought is going on? Well, part of this issue is what California is doing. And so we talking to the Californians that they should be doing what we are doing and they should not be using the Colorado River as much as they are, is what this conversation is all about. The United States Department of the Interior announced October 28th that the Bureau of Reclamation will analyze the existing guidelines for operating the Hoover Dam and Glen Canyon dams. The dams hold Lake Mead and Lake Powell Reservoirs, both of which are fed by the Colorado River. These dams must have high levels of water to generate hydropower and get water to the basin states. So they are now having these conversations at the highest level about what in the world are we going to do. Um, So I'm anxious to see how this plays out. The reason why this topic is important to me, obviously, on its surface, is like it is for everyone else, making sure we have the water we need. But Arizona has done such a good job thus far. The governor and the state legislature recently committed a billion dollars to try to ensure the next century that we would have the water we need. Now, what that's going to look like, first of all, we all have to understand that a billion dollars isn't going to be enough. That we're going to need a bigger investment, but we also need to do stuff that makes sense. Is it going to be desal? You know, are we going to um, be piping water into Arizona from the oceans where we take the salt out of the water and treat it so that it's usable? It's going to be expensive. There is another plan out there that maybe we take it from the Missouri or the Mississippi River Basin. But we know that there are going to be some things that are going to be necessary to get the water we need into the valley. It may be very expensive. Um, as the larger state, both population and land, California. California gets the largest allocation of the Colorado River water at 4.4 million acre feet and is the last to take mandatory cuts in the event of an emergency like the one we have now. That's where part of the issue is that they are the last ones to have to cut. What is going to happen here in Arizona and was a big story, and I think it is a huge story, that it probably isn't going to affect you or I in the valley. It's not going to affect your ability to water your lawn or to use water in your home. There's not going to be mandatory restrictions. But what's going to happen is agriculture, Pinal County and agriculture and the people that raise crops in there. We've already got a food shortage. We know food is extremely expensive. So imagine now Pinal County not being able to grow crops because of restrictions on water. If and when that happens, we are going to see food prices go up dramatically. The farmers that count on those crops to make a living are not going to be able to grow those crops. And it's one of the it's one of the penalties. Um, and I, I guess it wasn't written in as a penalty, but it's one of the concessions Arizona had to make in that agreement where California is the last to make cuts, even though they have the biggest share. So I don't know if uh, if this is of great interest to you, but it's been a, a, a an amazingly interesting topic for me to dive into. No pun intended. And uh, we're going to start trying to have some experts come on the show to talk about this and what Arizona legislators. Uh, Mark Kelly, the senator, is working on it in D.C. That was something he had talked about recently. And we'll find out how that election turns out. But state legislators are also working on this. And we're going to try to get some of them on the show to talk about the importance of this issue and what's going to happen next. An interesting topic just after 10 o'clock. Elon Musk buys Twitter. And all of a sudden, Twitter becomes the worst thing on the planet. We are going to talk about why people are outraged about him purchasing this company next.